0: Galatians 6. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh, from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. See what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. Those who want to impress people by means of the flesh are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not even those who are circumcised keep the law, yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your circumcision in the flesh. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, to the Israel of God. The word of the Lord.
1: May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my God and my Redeemer. I had a neighbor growing up who hated zucchini. Mr. Parker was this gruff, warm-hearted man. I can still hear the sound of him clearing his throat, sort of echoing across our fields. Uh, he He was the guy that, you know, he'd only gone to school through eighth grade, but he could fix anything with an engine. And our properties ran along each other for the length of an acre. And Mr. Parker would grow this incredible garden every single year. He knew how to get the soil just right, when to water, when to plant, how to fertilize. My mom was so jealous of this guy's green thumb. He just had an ability to make it happen. And when the time came, he would have these enormous stalks of fresh corn, juicy tomatoes, beans and berries, and of course, massive zucchinis. Turns out I also hated zucchini, but as a child, I was made to eat what was put in front of me and Mr. Parker, every year, out of the goodness of his dear old heart, would bring over a hollow zucchini enough to choke a horse, and my mother would smile and say, thank you, how generous, of course we'd love to take them, and I would be forced to eat what neither I nor Mr. Parker could stand. and I began to wonder. Why in the world does he keep planting this stuff? He doesn't even like it. It's not like he didn't know as he was pushing the seed into the ground that it wasn't going to magically turn into cucumber or a strawberry or something infinitely more edible than a zucchini. But he did it anyway. As St. Paul is beginning to wrap up his letter to the Galatian church, he has been pleading with them. Compared to his other letters, this one reads as if it was someone shouting into a megaphone. He has been pleading with them not to go back to their former way of life, not to go back to attempting self-justification, life under the law. And a couple of weeks ago, we looked at how we all live our lives under the law, attempting self-justification with all aspects of our lives. We were addicted to this idea of self-justification, even though it never pans out. It never gets us anywhere. And like Mr. Parker, we go on planting zucchini every spring and every summer we pull it up and we go So when St. Paul starts talking about sowing and reaping, we have to start to understand what he's getting at. When he sets up a dichotomy between flesh and spirit, he is not setting up a dichotomy between the physical and the immaterial. It's not about your body and your spirit. No, no, no. When he says flesh, he's talking about self-referential living. In chapter 5, just previous to our passage that we read this evening, he explains one side of this, this idea of the flesh. He says, the works of the flesh are obvious, fornication and other sexual impurity, hatred and jealousy, discord and factions and dissensions, drunkenness, All of these have to do with pleasing ourselves, filling ourselves, taking for ourselves, expressing ourselves, being true to ourselves. But we mustn't forget that for Saint Paul, flesh is also a reference to circumcision, which is a stand-in for the sort of self-righteous law-keeping that he's been telling us all along isn't going to bring us life. And it won't bring us life for exactly the same reason as the sort of more classic sinful stuff won't bring us life, which is it's completely self-referential. Attempts at self-justification are basically ways of saying it's about what I'm going to do to make atonement. It's about my ability to sacrifice for God, how I'm going to repay my debts and get God to like me. But Paul tells us in no uncertain terms that this way of life leads only to corruption. If you plant zucchini, turns out you're going to reap zucchini. And there's this sort of threader sweat, uh, hmm? sweater thread here that when you start to tug on it, it becomes clear how connected it is to the next thread. And the first thread is everybody worships. Everybody worships. The channel David Foster Wallace, everybody worships. This idea that we're somehow now achieving this secular freedom away from the tyranny of religion, we've now been all set free from having to worship anything or anybody, is completely silly. The second you start investigating it, you realize everybody worships. And as David Foster Wallace put it, and as far as we know, he was not a Christian, but he so insightfully saw it, and he puts it in his Kenyon College commencement speech. If you haven't read it or listen to it, I highly recommend it. It's called This is Water. You can just Google David Foster Wallace, This is Water. But he says this, everybody worships. And if you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. You will never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you in the ground. Worship power, you will feel weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on, and so on. For Paul, though, the difference is even more stark. Because all of these things, even the things in David Foster Wallace's list, end in corruption. Not corruption in the sense of a dirty cop on the take, corruption in the sense of the fruit in the back of your fridge that has started to get real sticky and moldy and it's just sort of oozing out this disgusting green. What is that? Corruption. It's decay. And Paul essentially tells us in the church at Galatia, you've got two choices. You can either spend your time chasing down the perfect career or the perfect bank account or the perfect body or the perfect mate or, as it turns out, the perfect religion. All of which, even if you attain it for a brief moment, will break down eventually and return to decay and dust. Or you can do what St. Paul calls sowing to the Spirit And from the Spirit, reap eternal life. And it's in these few short verses that Paul has effectively knotted together practice and identity in such a way that we cannot easily get them disentangled. We can't take them apart. See, all along in his letter, he's essentially been saying, Don't think that the law and your keeping of it is going to save you. It won't, it will not bring life. But then tonight in our passage, he says, Let us not grow weary in doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. This passage from Galatians comes to us at a very opportune time in the life of our church. As we have been talking over the last many months about what it means to be the disciples of Jesus, to take seriously the calling of the cross and the mysterious joy of being brought into the divine life, we're really wrestling with how practice and identity are intertwined. And as we saw a couple of weeks ago, it is so terribly easy for us to turn time and again back to basing our identity on our own efforts, on our law-keeping so we can take Paul's command to not grow weary in doing good and make it a new way of selling to the flesh, using it as a way of getting God to like us, getting our neighbors to think better of us, getting ourselves to think better of us. So what are we to do? How are we to think about serving the poor in our city, serving our children in the nursery, serving one another in our prayer life without these things becoming badges of misplaced Pride, without them becoming a platform for us to build our own identity apart from Christ. Well, there's a saying of the Desert Fathers that goes like this Abbot Lot came to Abbot Joseph and said, Father, to the limit of my ability, I keep my little rule, my little fast, my prayer, meditation, and contemplative silence. And to the limit of my ability, I work to cleanse my heart of evil thoughts. What more should I do? the elder rose up in reply, stretched out his hands to heaven, and his ten fingers became like ten pillars of fire. And he said, why not be changed utterly into fire? In his letter to the Philippians, when Paul envisions himself being challenged by someone, asking, who do you think you are? He tells the church there that his response is no longer, well, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I'm a member of the house of Israel, the covenant family. I'm in the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. That's not what Paul says anymore when people ask him, who do you think you are? No, now he says he views all of that stuff as complete garbage compared with the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, of gaining Christ, of what he says, being found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. In his letter to the Galatians that we're reading tonight, he puts it far more succinctly. One sentence Far be it from me to boast in anything except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the only thing that Paul is willing to glory in. But don't forget the cross is deeply shameful. On the face of it, it is the symbol of losers. The Jewish leadership flexed its political muscle in riling up the people, outmaneuvering the complacent Roman rulers, who, in order to save face, then flex the empire muscle of Rome and crush King Jesus on a cross in a death so public, so humiliating, so absolutely reeking of utter failure. This is Paul's boast. And Paul answers the question forming in our minds, really? With, oh, yeah. Because through this humiliating death, Christ dies to the world of power and fear and intimidation and self-righteousness. And in his resurrection, he defeats death and ushers in a new creation. This new realm where none of the rules of the decaying world apply any longer. None of them. Christ's cross effectively sets up a black hole against which all of the attempts of the world at self-justification are dropped into nothingness. And those that pass through death with him are also raised into newness of life. As Paul tells the Corinthians, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. You're part of this new world order. The old decaying world order has no claim on you. You no longer have to live according to the pattern of the world which is desperate to find life and justification on its own terms. If you are in Christ, Paul says, that world has been crucified to you, and you have been crucified to it. The only thing that counts is new creation. In other words, why not be utterly changed into fire? So tomorrow morning when you wake up and your smartphone and your prayer book are both on your bedside table winking at you, guess what? You don't have to reach for either one of them in an attempt at building an identity for yourself, at self-justification. That whole way of doing things has been crucified to you and you have been crucified to it. The only thing that counts is new creation. So why not be utterly changed into fire? Or maybe on Tuesday evening when the cool people, and you all know who they are, you all have a group that you aspire to, whether it's the co-workers who are going to work longer hours and really make something of themselves, or it's the moms at the park who look like they're doing a photo shoot and someone professionally did their makeup just now, and their kids are wearing clothes that just popped off a J.Crew catalog page. They're totally unruffled. Or maybe it's the group at the bar who drove here in the exact car you've always wanted and are wearing the clothes that you didn't even know were cool, but they obviously are. And they're laughing and having a good time. They have all these things that you don't. Guess what? You don't have to try to be someone that they want you to be. You just don't. You don't have to try to get their acceptance because you have been accepted by the king of the universe. And in your baptism, that whole way of getting in with the in crowd has been crucified to you. And you have been crucified to it. You're free from it. The only thing that counts is new creation. So why not be utterly changed into fire? Or maybe it'll be late Thursday night. Late in the week, when your internal lawyer kicks into overdrive to remind you of all the ways you've been failing people close to you. Failing to be a good disciple of Jesus, failing to be a good husband or a good neighbor or a good mother or a good daughter, failing to be a good Portlander, and when the anxiety starts to set in that your marriage isn't as great as you thought it was going to be or that marriage maybe isn't going to happen for you like you thought it was going to, and your whole inconsistency as a parent is gonna somehow wreck your kids for life or that your parents are never really gonna understand you or be proud of you. If you've been brought through the waters of baptism, then you have been crucified with Christ. And all of those things, those old ways of living have been crucified to you, and you have been crucified to it. All that counts is new creation, and you are a new creation. So why not be utterly changed into fire? Can you imagine if the dialogue in your brain that's constantly telling you that you have to do X, Y, Z to get your parents to love you or ABC to stay on the right side of the law just vanished? Can you imagine if that was gone? I mean, can you just right now just close your eyes and picture what it must feel like in your brain and your heart and your stomach to actually be free of all of that? Can you imagine being brought into Christ's crucifixion In such a way that the world and all its demands hit the back of this cross and shatters into nothingness and you are brought into new creation, resurrected into new life that doesn't see corruption. I mean, this is why we've been talking about doing daily prayer and scripture reading. It's not so that we can feel better about ourselves. It's so that we can be daily reminded that this is reality for those that are in Christ. What would it be like to really live that way, to really know it, to embrace it, to take out the sunshine and the watering can every day and just soak in it? turns out Paul tells us. It's a few verses before our reading for the evening. But he tells us that when we farm to the Spirit, by recalling the beauty of the Gospel and being dead to the world's demands, then there's fruit of the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit is love. And when you soak in the water and love of Jesus, you can love anybody. You can even love the guy that cut you off in traffic on the way here. And the fruit of the Spirit is joy. So when you soak in the truth that the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, when they think about you, he smiles. His heart leaps up in joy at the thought of you. And when you soak in that, then in a moment like last week, when you take a bite of that salmon that Janelle Rispler made... Your first thought isn't, boy, I bet my family is really disappointed that I can't cook this good. No, your first thought is just, wow, this is amazing. Joy. And the fruit of the Spirit is peace. So when you really dig down deep into the soil of God's peace toward you, and every day you begin to remember that your relationship with him is reconciled because of what Christ has done on your behalf, you can have peace with others. You can even have peace with yourself. Anxiety, gone. It can finally vanish. The fruit of the Spirit, Paul tells us, is patience, kindness, goodness. When you feel the warmth of God's joyful smile upon you, knowing how patient he has been with you over the years, how kind he has acted toward you, how his goodness is limitless toward you and he invites you into it, You'll find patience and kindness and goodness just welling up from inside you. The fruit of the Spirit is faithfulness, gentleness, self control. And when you sink daily your roots deep into the truth that God keeps His promises, that way back when, He promised our ancestors that He would one day bring one who would crush the head of the serpent and reverse the curse throughout the entire universe. That he is faithful to his promises. That Christ, God the Son, came as a lamb to the slaughter in gentleness. That as a sheep before his shearers was silent, he did not cry out, self-controlled. That for the joy set before him, life in his kingdom with you is the joy set before him. He endured the cross, faithfulness. When you really feed on those things, you will be like a tree planted by streams of water, yielding the fruit of the Spirit in season, whose leaf does not wither, but blossoms unto eternal life. Or, as Abbot Joseph might have put it, you will have been utterly changed into fire.